and on behalf of the Australian Labor Party, I commit to the Uluru Statement from the Heart in full. We are a man down. Oh, it's the workers what did it. <laughs> the big space that we're not really supposed to talk about. I butchered his name straight off the bat. Economists do know something. <laughs> it's a cash grab. I'm tough because I don't care about politics. Ask them simple questions and demand simple answers. <laughs> Smart people are taking care of everyone's money. Trickle down. Here's how we're going to spend $640 billion. All state street tax cuts. A really dirty word. Oh, can't get that forever. <laughs> they, they said the quiet thing out loud. <laughs> they said the quiet thing out loud. It's only oh. $40 bill. If there was a zone, I'd be in one. It's it's a it's a vibe. Hey hey hey, a vibe. It's a vibe. It's the vibe of the thing. Is that yep? Look at recording. those. There's some good lines. Good lines, Mick. I have the best lines. So, uh, episode forty-four A. Yes. Um, and we'll explain why it's forty-four A shortly. But a few things have happened since our last podcast. What, what did happen? One thing is your shed got chock-a-block full of gear, so we're at an alternate location, but um, something happened. welcome to the stage, the man set to be the 31st Prime Minister of Australia. Chills, and they're multiplying. It was, it was a good time on Saturday night. Very good time. Has it sunk in yet? Still sinking in. Okay. Thank you. Many... Many uh, tear-in-the-eye moments. Absolutely. I begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we meet. I pay my respect to their elders, past, present and emerging. And on behalf of the Australian Labor Party, I commit to the Uluru Statement from the Heart in full. Hear, hear. And I proudly thank the members of the mighty trade union movement. Did that happen? It wasn't in that order, though, was it, Chris? There may have been some slight uh, creative editing. You've been tampering to in that you, clip. You? I may have been. So um, we are a man down. Neil got COVID. He got the Rona, and he could, and he and he couldn't make it in. So what, what we thought, what could we do? So I put a, the call out to the chief and said, "Can you give us a chop out, mate?" And uh, it turns out he could. So. If you're wondering uh, who I'm talking about, he's flown in especially for this podcast. It's Dr. Richard Jen- Dennis. I butchered his name straight <laughs> off the bat. This is fucking out, Rolls. The Chief Economist from the Australian Institute. Richard, thanks Whee! for coming in. <laughs> how, did we, how did we do this? Well, I don't know. I'm just disappointed I didn't get to see the shed. <laughs> <laughs> there'll, there'll be a next time, maybe when we're not so, so cut for time. But on a personal note, there's never a bad time to blow smoke. And I have to say, going back a couple of years when we first started this podcast, you, sir, were one of the main reasons because you managed to allow simple electrical folk that can't read good, like me and Clarkie, to access and be able to understand things that were otherwise deliberately put out as very, very complex um, matters and allow folks like us to digest them. So it, it showed that more is possible. And there can be connections drawn between us in our shed and um, the big space that we're not really supposed to talk about in a lot of ways. So thanks very much for that, mate. Oh, not at all. Thank you. And yeah, look, you and your members know far more about a whole bunch of things than I do. 
and when someone comes to my house and I don't know if I need an electrician or I need a plumber, I want them to speak in plain English to me. <laughs> yeah, I, do. I do, and and if they're good at their job, they can. There's something wrong with Richard's mic. Oh no. The on button. Oh. The on button. Oh no. Here he is. Try that, Richard. <laughs> I'm glad that got picked up early. Shall, and, we, shall we try that again? No, no, no. It would have been. It, I reckon it's been picked up in the ambience, but we'll, I'll blame Michael for that. <laughs> and and but we this is true. This is how we this podcast runs. It's how it rolls. <laughs> Rough and ready. Absolutely. <laughs> Sorry, mate. We've um, cockblocked you already. Oh no! All, all I was saying is, you know, when you understand things, you should be able to help other people understand it. That's a good thing. And yeah, economists have got a great reputation at confusing the hell out of people, and that's deliberate. They're choosing to confuse people. And yeah, I, I try to let everyone in on the debate you know a bit of a whistleblower when it comes to this stuff so no thanks so much for the work you guys do and 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 yeah look thanks for noticing that what all i'm trying to do is say hang on this is stuff for everyone to be involved in um but yeah next time someone hears some economist or some politician talking about the economy in a way they don't understand you know my one bit of advice is just ask them simple questions and demand simple answers because if they can't give a simple answer they're either bullshitting you or they just don't even know it would be handy at times um and it seems in this last six weeks leading up to the election there's there's been an absence of that critique and simple sort of talk around the election and i think it could be seen as a bit of an insidious thing where you get everyone gets uh, jammed up with a bit of two minutes on every news cast saying here's some really complex maths that you probably don't know about so we're just reinforcing the fact that smart people are taking care of everyone's money yeah but in terms of what we're dealing with now which is um a lot of pressure on the working class around in inflation and wages and all that sort of stuff it's really really frustrating and <laughs> credit to you for keeping always seem on the straight and level and calm about everything but it's super frustrating now we're in a world where the minute that workers ask for a wage increase that's the only thing that can cause inflation oh, <laughs> so i've got about 80 dorothy dixon questions here about myths oh, and not, myths great. and stuff like that but we'll, we'll bring them on yeah, yeah let, i mean it's amazing like we we've had low wages for 10 years the whole time the conservatives were in power we had really record low wages growth and then all of a sudden we got this big spike in inflation and, and, and instantly it's like, oh, it's the workers what did it. <laughs> yes. It's like, how could that possibly be? Yeah. How could you have 10 years of the lowest wage growth on record driving inflation? Sure. And then when they said, look, we're not driving it, we just wouldn't mind keeping up. It's like, well, that'll cause it again. Yeah, it's just <laughs> absolutely outrageous. Um, but before I clog this up too much, I we must congratulate Clarky because – his talent in stalking, a bit of casual, casual stalking over a long period of time. I'm not sure if Richard came here of his free will in the end or in the back of a van somewhere. Uh, I don't mind. He slid into the DMs, but he did, yeah. it, he did it so smooth. I was very happy to, I'm, to I'm see I'm pretty it. sure I coerced him. He's like, God, I'm just going to have to fucking get this guy off my case and just fucking cave. The ABCC will be here in a minute. You can't do that. Uh, but um, before he does that, because Clarky put in um, and made the connection and um, sort of organised this, I thought before we get lost in everything else, did you want to do the plug? Do you yeah, want to do ab the, absolutely. So, do the plug-in. So um, 
Yeah, that thing I said at the start about Richard flying in exclusively to come on our podcast was complete bullshit. Um, <laughs> he's. I would if I could. <laughs> <laughs> We're not that big of a deal yet. We may, we may get there one day, but he is in Tassie in Hobart talking about his new book, Big, the Role of the State in the Modern Economy. And I think the reason why Richard wrote this book was after watching Barnaby Joyce pissed on Christmas Eve feeding his cattle... <laughs> Pleading for the government to get out of his life. <laughs> as the Deputy Prime Minister. As the Deputy PM. Um, he, uh, he felt that he may have to set the record straight about a few things. I'm, I may just be jumping to conclusions there, Richard, but... Um I think it played a role. <laughs> <laughs> it affected everyone. There's plenty of motivation in, in, in that little video clip. It sure was. Oh, jeez, enough to make you spew. It was fucking... <laughs> I don't know what's wrong with the bloke, but anyway. So you, you've got a... Obviously, there's a million myths to be busted in terms of the economy. So how did you arrive at this one in particular? Oh, look, I guess, you know, I wanted to write, and it's only a, it's a really short book, you know, you can't see it on a podcast, but it's a, it's an essay, it's a, it's a very short read, but I wanted to write a short book about something big and important, and I thought, well, what's bigger than the role of government, the role of the state, because we've just been told in Australia for so long if we just cut government spending, cut taxes for rich people, cut regulation on business, cut, 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 we're always cutting the role of the state, one day everything will be okay. Well, it's not. <laughs> We've done that for 30 years. And then if you look around the world, you look at countries like Norway and Sweden and Denmark and Finland, the countries that have got the highest taxes, the most public spending, free public universal health, free public universal education, great public transport, turns out they're actually the richest countries in the world. But more importantly than that, uh, they've got high productivity growth, they've got vibrant manufacturing and export sectors, and they're the happiest people in the world. And But in Australia, you know, you could, you could read every newspaper in Australia every day, and it's pretty rare that you read a positive story that said, you know what, if the government did a better job of that, your life would be better. You know, and you were talking about cost of living at the beginning. You know, what better way to give people uh, to reduce cost of living than what we did during the COVID crisis and make childcare free? Sure. It worked. Yeah. <laughs> right. And guess what? Most of Europe has free childcare. But the minute, like, we did it, it worked, everyone was happy. And then we're like, oh, we can't keep that forever. Like, why not? <laughs> yeah. So the book's really about why not. You know, why? And, and, and to be clear, we won't all agree on what we should do. We won't all agree whether free childcare is better or worse than, you know, much better aged care or much better public. That's fine. They're the democratic conversations we should be having. What do you want more of? What do you want less of? There's no free lunch here, but we've just been told in Australia for so long there's only one meal for you and it's gruel. That's right. <laughs> now eat your gruel and, and, and if we eat enough gruel for long enough, you'll be happy one day. Well, bullshit we will. That's right. It um, may even uh, look like a failed experiment in a lot of ways. Well, um, that's the point. I think it has failed. And, and, you know, I think we saw a lot of voters just reject that, uh, which I think is interesting and important. But, again, even if people think we're on the, going in the right direction, they should at least be honest enough to say we don't have to do that. They just want to do that. You know, vote for me because I want to cut taxes and I want to cut spending. Fine. But if someone says, well, wait for me because I want to collect more revenue from big companies and spend more on childcare, 
well, that's fine too. Like it's up to us to settle that fight. That's that's democracy, not economics. Yeah, a- absolutely. And the previous government, and even when the previous government was in opposition, they sort of hijacked the whole economic debate about what economics even meant. Things like deficit, debt, stimulus, things of that nature. And, and you mentioned in, in Big, and you might have even mentioned it in Econobabble, that the shape of public spending matters more than the size. And going back to what you just said, it sort of it, the question is what type of society do you want to live in? Yeah. Absolutely. And again, that's a democratic question, not one for economists to answer. And that's really not just in this book, but kind of in everything I write. I'm trying to say, look, economists, well, we're we're like tradespeople. We can help you solve a particular problem. You know, a a plumber can sort your plumbing problem, but you don't usually let your plumber tell tell you how many bathrooms you need. No, no, I mean (laughs) that. You figure out how many bathrooms you need and then you ask the plumber, where's the smart place to put them? Yep. You know, if I'm going to renovate my house, I don't ask the architect to tell me what house I want to live in. I say to the architect, oh, I think I need, you know, an extra bedroom. And they say, well, you know, the smart place to put it would be here. That's the role of economists, I think. You know, if society says, look, we'd like more of this, more of this and less of this, we can say, oh, well, there's a few ways you could do that. You know, this way is cheaper, this way will last longer. You know, what do you want? But instead, we've flipped that all on its head and we've got sort of politicians speaking economics and economists speaking economics at people to say there is no choice, you know, when actually whether we want to spend a fortune on uh, nuclear submarines or the same amount of money on health and education, that's a democratic choice. Or stage three tax cuts. Or $15 billion <laughs> a year in stage three tax cuts. The, Sounds cheap. The scale of it just, it really gets me where, and the politicisation also, like when you you look at, I sort of refer to the mainstream, say the press pack or whatever you want to call it, we keep on, things keep on not happening, right? So penalty rate cuts were supposed to produce jobs. Yeah, jobs. That's, yep. That was a jobs bonanza, clearly. <laughs> Any day now. Um, Just about to kick in. It's going really good. And company tax cuts and workers being jobs. pulling their head in, you know, that's because bosses were just waiting to employ more people if only they had money. That's how... They were John Howard's little Aussie battlers. But when they talk about things like it's all theoretical and it's just rhetoric like markets are expecting or we should start seeing or these things, they're not they're not facts. No. And I think that's why your role and the very few folks that I believe are in your league of truth-telling is it's economics has really become a political issue rather than what I, as a simpleton thought was supposed to be a facts facts based sort of scientific exercise of there's objective facts about numbers yeah rather than it's like an evangelical sort of proposition about what's supposed to happen to money in theory you know yeah so look i mean economists do know some things right but we don't know as much as people either think and then we don't know as much as politicians so if we treble the price of petrol tomorrow i guarantee people will buy less petrol there is a relationship there between the price of petrol and, and, and how much petrol people consume. I, absolutely. But I can say that very, very confidently. But when someone says, so if we cut the company tax rate, it'll lead to job creation in five years' time. No, that's just bullshit. <laughs> it's a cash grab. <laughs> it's a cash grab. You know, but you know, the, my one-liner for this is that economics is in Australia has sort of become this sort of thing. It's a tool you use to dress your self-interest up as the national interest. It's not that I want a tax cut. Oh, no, that'd be greedy and selfish. 
I want to create jobs. It'll be good for everyone else. I want to help everybody. Oh, God. It's just that the way to help everybody is to help me first. Sure. <laughs> it's just directly I might have to do it first. Yeah. But because I'm such a good bloke, I'm going to look yeah, after yeah, you so guys. You, sounds a little bit you, like trickle down. Exactly. Yeah. You shovel enough money into my pocket and one day you'll get some money in your pocket first. <laughs> the job creators. The job creators. Wait, George Bush creators. said that. Yeah. <laughs> Makers and takers, lifters and leaners. Oh, oh no, Mick, that. I'm going to spew. It, <laughs> that is actually going to be a hygiene issue if we continue along that line. <laughs> Absolutely. One of the um, things you said in your new book, Richard, and I used it before the election talking to members about Canberra was it's hard to believe that anyone who understands how important government decisions are could believe that who's in government doesn't matter because we come up against it all the time from people we talk to oh it doesn't matter they're all the same they're all fucking idiots dickheads in suits calling each other's names and blah 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 and I don't care and I'm tough because I don't care about politics and the world's going to go on so how did how did we end up there oh. where, like, I mean, clearly there's social engineering around how politics is presented to turn people off paying attention. But like you said, it's really important, these decisions that get made. And a lot of the times it's two ships passing in the night and no one even knows and then all of a sudden there's this law that exists. Yeah. So how did we, how did we end up here? Well, I guess I'd, I'd say we ended up here on purpose. Because, and, and, you know, Scott Morrison was kind of the classic example of this. The one thing Scott Morrison didn't want was scrutiny and accountability. If we were all kind of bored, and even if we were kind of bored and frustrated, that was fine by him. Because he know? was good at managing the frustration. Yeah, and even... And blame, f- blaming other folks. Fermenting some of the frustration, blaming. So, you know, I always just try and, you know, the economist in me, just bring it back to numbers. You know, we had a budget a couple of months ago in Australia just before the election... And what the budget, and everyone knows budgets are boring. The budget literally says, here's how we're going to spend $640 billion. That's what the budget is. Who's going to get the $640 billion that Scott Morrison's government spent every year? Like every year, the Australian government spends more money than Elon Musk will spend in his entire lifetime, right? That's. Health, that's education, that's transport, that's helping women fleeing domestic violence, that's subsidising private schools, that's subsidising private hospitals, that's you, everything. But if we've got... $640 billion. If we've got $640 billion, the million-dollar question is why are we so poor? Yeah. Because well, we're just made to feel like we've got nothing, tighten your belt, you know, we can't afford nice things, but clearly we can. Correct. But if everyone's bored... Like, and everyone believes it doesn't matter who's in government, then there's people aren't going, hang on, no, this can't be. I'm paying attention here. Like, imagine you were, uh, you were a member of the local footy club and the local footy club had a, had a, had a president and a treasurer and each, each year the local footy club was spending a couple of million bucks. And, you know, the... Toilets were a disgrace and the food was crap and everything about the footy was crap. And someone said, you know, we're spending a couple of million bucks a year. What on? Like, hopefully people would get involved and think, how can this be? You know, if, if, if our little footy club's got that much money and we're spending that much and I look around and all the problems that I would solve if I were running the place aren't getting fixed, I think people would tune in. And unfortunately, yeah, all the econobabble, all of the nonsense has kind of built all these layers between 25 million Australians thinking, yeah, how, how, okay, the, you said the economy's grown for 30 years in a row. 
Well, how come, For who? Well, how come we feel broke? Yep. <laughs> right? Someone's doing well. And how come we get told that Australia is a country that's basically silverfish eating our wallet? Yeah. And um, so I was, I was going to ask you about that. Like, we're told that and uh, in the Abbott years, a bit of an attack dog, pretty effective opposition leader, sadly. That $100 billion or so of, let's be not be too frivolous, $100 billion of debt was, you know, rack and ruin. The country's about to go broke. Mm. Now we've increased that tenfold. Literally. Um, Tr- trillion dollar debt. Literally threw away billions last year to people that didn't need it. How does how does a country that's basically built on rare metals go broke? Yeah. Um, well, we're not going to go broke. Like, the first thing to understand is that nation states, sovereign countries like Australia, don't go bankrupt. They might make dumb decisions and ruin the quality of lives of Australians. I'm not saying there are no consequences for bad decision-making. But just to be really clear, a little bit of economics here, like a, a, a nation state that prints its own currency can't go bankrupt. Because unlike you or I... If, if the Australian government needs to repay a billion dollars worth of debt, it's got a couple of options. It could increase taxes. It could borrow a billion dollars from someone else to repay the billion to who it owes it to. Or option three can literally print up a billion dollars and, and, and give it away. Now, if that's all you did, and that's not what's happening in Australia, but if that's all you did, you would have met your legal obligation. You'd have repaid the money. But you would have caused a lot of inflation and the money wouldn't be worth much. So when I say governments or countries can't go bankrupt, I mean it very literally. But I'm not saying, therefore, nothing matters. I don't mean that at all. But most humans uh, have sort of, you know, ideas like, well, I'd like to repay any debts I have, like for my house or something, before I retire. You can see why. You know, your income will fall when you retire. (coughs) You, You know, you want to be relaxed. But still, picking that date's a bit arbitrary. No, but, but think about it. When, when's Australia going to retire? Like what's, what's the date that we should have zero debt by? I just had this well, dumb idea of thinking, how, how quickly can we turn our country into one big hole in the ground and have sold everything? Well, well there's that. But, but look, the retirement date keeps moving for workers. Yeah, so sorry, it's, no, it's, no, but it goes on in perpetuity. It go, well, hopefully it yeah. does. Yeah, and, and, and let's be clear, if it doesn't... There was a Chinese spy ship, though, Richard, just oh, before the Just before the election. And some refugees. Tampa. Too. Did everyone get hairs on the back of their neck and Tampa vibes? Got a text message about it. Oh, um, but, but, like, I mean this very literally. Like, if something happens and Australia comes to an end, we got bigger problems than how much debt we had that day. <laughs> of course. All right? So, let's, so, so, don't get me wrong. Debt matters. Uh, I'm not saying it doesn't matter. But being a nation being debt-free is, is, is not necessarily desirable. And, and, and we think debt's bad, except that every kid that finishes school and wants to go to uni, we say, oh, you should get into debt. We'll sell you a degree, 50, 60,000 bucks. And we tell the kid, don't worry about having that debt because you'll earn more later in your life. It's a good idea. And then they start paying off their hex debt and they you know, have to borrow half a million bucks to buy a house. We said, don't worry, that's a good debt right? because that's an asset. And that asset will both mean you don't have to pay rent and it'll probably go up in value over time. So we know that debt's not bad because we make kids get it. We make young families get it. What's bad is racking up money on your credit card, taking it and spending it on the poker machines. Like borrowing money and having nothing to show for it, that is uh, you've got a liability but no asset. 
That's bad. Sounds a bit like JobKeeper. Well, <laughs> you stole my punchline. Yeah, exactly. So so don't get me wrong. I think that the stimulus package worked. It kept us out. But if we'd have, if we'd have the shape of the spending, if we'd have aimed that stimulus at things that delivered lasting benefits, we wouldn't just have got through the crisis. We'd be better off now and better off in 100 years' time. And My favourite example, I, I don't know about in Tassie, but all up the east coast of the mainland, there's these beautiful Art Deco ocean baths. And there's a hint there. Guess when they were built? In the 1930s, after the Great Depression. Yeah, there's no money. How could they possibly have thought that was a good idea? Well, they were broke, but they were, that was their stimulus spending. <laughs> no, no, but we still get to swim in them. Sure. Yeah, right, so... The fact that the that the Morrison government spent all that money helped get us through the crisis, but you know, and we we kind of spoke a lot about this at the time. You know, we said, but you know, you really want to spend money on things that have lasting benefits, things that are labour intensive, so create a lot of jobs in the here and now, and that deliver lasting benefits, and then you can't go wrong because then you've got jobs today and assets in the future. And because we weren't talking about the shape of spending, we got kind of sucked into just talking about the size. Yeah, we, we blew $40 billion on JobKeeper for growing profitable companies. And for the first time in my lifetime, you know, you heard the treasurer and the business community go, it's only $40 bill. <laughs> they, they said the quiet <laughs> thing out loud. They said the quiet thing out loud. It's only oh. $40, Bill. And, 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 you know, but in some sense they're right, right? Because, yeah. again, we spend $640,000 million a year on good stuff – so only 40 bill, actually that's true. That's right. But right? That's how rich we are. I must admit I'm a little bit confused because when the GFC hit and Labor used <laughs> stimulus to keep me in a job, I got told that that was very, very bad. Oh, so that was I, Labor debt. Yeah. So ta- in, in Tassie at the time, Richard, the um, often the uh, economic waves are pretty quick to hit us and they hit us pretty hard in terms of um, cycling our industries and construction and whatnot. And Clarkie's dead right with the school hall stuff. So you're talking about build something that's an asset. Yeah. Um, anything to do with child's education um, in a roundabout sense is an asset. They got slammed. Yeah. They got their head slammed into the gutter. The stimulus checks, that's outrageous, wasteful spending. But it kept that, for our point of view, that kept our livelihoods oh. for a couple of maybe three years and after it, the GFC. Yeah, and it worked. It was a good idea. You know, it was an absolutely good idea, but the, the combination of, you know, a, a, a rabid opposition and a, and a rabid Murdoch media conspired to say, you know, let's be clear, like, you're going to build a thousand school halls in a hurry. Yeah, maybe one of them was more expensive than it should have been. Maybe, I don't know. Maybe one of them got built in a, in a school in a, one of the few towns in Australia that was declining. Oh, that's a bit dumb. Right, but actually, the, what it was was like, what are the things we can do really quick that are, again, labour-intensive, deliver lasting benefits, right? School halls, build out a best of bricks, you know, yes, people needed some skill to build them, but it wasn't kind of the most elaborate construction right. activity. It didn't need rare, expensive bits of capital equipment that were hard to find. It was pretty quick, easy construction work. And yeah, the, the the you know the the hostility to it at the time was politically confected, mm. and yeah, you know now that's that's rounding error on JobKeeper, and I oh, don't worry about it. But yeah, look, my kids, both my kids are at public schools, and both of them have got you know school halls and outdoor learning, covered outdoor learning areas that were were built during the GFC. Yeah, well, my my kids actually um, 
they actually went to school in a building that I that I wired mm. as part of that project. So it was beneficial to the to the whole community as a whole. Once again, the shape of the spending really mattered. But according to the economic debate at the time, like we just went over, it was reckless, it was irresponsible, so on and so forth, and yet here we are with a trillion dollars worth of debt and it's no problem. That's no problem. Yeah. Can um, I also touch on another project, the NBN, which at oh. the time was seen as dangerous because it was obviously ranked communism to have everyone oh. having access to information, could have been the absolute or a, a key driver of hope for the working class as, and the working poor through high-speed data availability. Obviously, the Libs torpedoed that. But interestingly, it started off as a pre-COVID as a dirty display of rank communism. And then through COVID, the amount of punters that were moving from the mainland down here, because Tassie was actually one of the most early advanced places of the NBN, yep. pro- proved to be quite ironic because it kept... Basically, um, high-speed data kept a lot of businesses alive through that time. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, if you think about how we got through the COVID crisis, the money, absolutely, the stimulus package is a big part of it. But what were the two really central bits of infrastructure that helped not just the government and the economy, but helped every Australian business stay in business? The two were the, the National Broadband Network, there's a hint in the name, National Communist gulags and forced labor and all that stuff labor all that eating their gruel um (laughs) so the national broadband network and australia post both a hundred percent government owned and without those two things all those other businesses that rapidly did well to transition their business and deliver online all that none of it could have happened if it wasn't for the role of the state and, and put another way, it would have happened even better and cheaper if the broadband network hadn't been bollocked up by the leaves. Oh, oh. yeah, no, no, it would. Absolutely. They, yeah, yeah. You know, they, they, for a political point, they said, no, no, we don't all need fiver to the home. Let's, let's do it a complicated, more expensive way than that. That's right. So that slowed things down. New Zealand don't know what they're doing. Nah, suckers, Singapore, <laughs> most of <laughs> yeah, Asia. Right. Yeah. Um, so, so Kazakhstan, the Philippines, we would be on the Philippines oh. in terms of our. Data access. But we just never tell and we're never told good news stories about the public sector, Mm. right? And it was the the publicly owned broadband network that underpinned, you know, our our move to the online economy and it was the publicly owned Australia Post that coped with, and I might have this wrong, but it was something like, you know, everyone knows that they, you know, parcels and letters go crazy at Christmas time and Australia Post spends kind of months gearing up for that. Australia Post wound up doing Christmas every month during COVID. That's right. And that's a public... And and we're told, oh, the problem with the public sector is it's not innovative, it's not flexible. Bullshit. Yeah, 100%. And and, and let's be clear, imagine that we'd privatised Australia Post. Would the... Well, (laughs) well, it would be a crap idea. Remember what I said before, you know, if I trebled the price of petrol, I know what would happen. Well, here's another thing I know would happen. If, if, If Australia Post was privately owned, do you think they would have scaled up their parcel delivery service or do you think they would have jacked up the price for their existing parcel delivery service. I think that's an outrageous allegation that a (laughs) private business would gouge the market. But that takes a little quote out of um, Richard's book. I've got heaps of quotes coming at you. 
page seventy-five. And oh, this is from something page. That, yeah. from the from the good book. <laughs> something that Richard said said <laughs> contrary to popular belief, there is nothing in economics textbooks that says the private sector provision of goods and services is necessarily more efficient than the public sector delivery. Nothing at all. And we see that time and time again in our industry with the privatisation of essential infrastructure like power, where apparently having a NEMS is a great idea and everyone's going to get cheap power and it's going to be um, a party for all. Whereas I think the latest projection was, was it 18% increase to power prices? Default market price, yeah. So, like, absolutely just Just after nonsense. the election. Who'd have thought Who oh, that on that? Crazy. <laughs> It was in their junk mail. They didn't uh, didn't spin across on on nationalisation, and that's obviously linked to. Um, it's funny how our the psyche in Australia is still very reds under the bed, just be beyond the, like below the surface. But say for for conversation's sake, our um, we like to have a chat about things in the shed in a very broad systemic way, and say that our politics might be that short of forced land seizures that maybe everything should be nationalised. What's your view on such things? Well, good news. Um, <laughs> no, Before he takes his headphones off and fucking <laughs> runs out no, the no. We're, we're actually in a great era of nationalisation in Australia at the moment. We just don't talk about it. So the National Broadband Network has a huge bit of public kit. Poorly implemented, but, you know, ultimately we'll own it and that's, that's a good, good thing. Um, Snowy 2.0, $10 billion public asset uh, into storage. Is it the best way to organise storage? I don't know, but we're going to we're spending a shitload on it and we'll own it at the end of it. No doubt about that. National Inland Rail, $20 billion. It was going to cost five. Then it was going to, this is Barnaby's pet baby. It's going to cost five and then it's going to cost 10. When it hit 15, he did a press conference and you'd think there'd be some embarrassment. You know, it's now 300% dearer than originally. And he said, nah, there's a lot more jobs than we thought. Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> oh, jobs and growth. It, sound, it sounds like nuclear power getting rolled oh, out. I love jobs and growth. But, so we've got this national, right, again, state-owned, uh, inland rail, $20 billion. So, and, and you know, uh, gas-fired power station up in Curry Curry, New South Wales, $1.2 billion national. Right, so it's kind of, sounds weird, but it's, it's only Labor governments that are afraid no, this is important. That's right. They're afraid of being accused of, of spending. spending and owning things, and whereas the Libs and the Nats in particular, oh, sign me up. That's right. No it, problem it's, at it, all. It has I'll, sat I'll their spend courage. other people's money to build the things I like. You know, so I actually I think that's why I kind of frame it in that way, shape not size again. We are in the midst of an enormous nationalisation project, not buying stuff back but building new stuff and saying, right, we own that jointly. And I think, great, let's do more of it. But I think we should be aiming the money, you know, at... at re I mean, my favourite example in the book is we talk about housing a lot in Australia and how to fix housing and housing and housing. Oh, it's so hard. Well, we have this thing in Australia called the Defence Housing Authority. And, and there's a hint in the name. <laughs> it provides... It's an authority that provides housing... If you're lucky enough to work in defence. Communism has very good descriptors. It does. They're, just, they're very direct to yeah. what they're doing. So we've got this Defence Housing Authority, which literally owns and builds houses. It's a property developer. 
It builds houses all around Australia and it rents them out at low, cheap rent to people who work in defence, which is fine. That's nice. Uh, and then sometimes it owns the houses or sometimes it actually, after it signs a 10-year lease, like it gets tenants in and then it sells it. You can, you know, you see ads in the paper every now and then. You can actually buy one of these houses after the Defence Housing Authority's built it and after it's signed a 10-year lease. Imagine if we had the Nurses Housing Authority or the Teachers Housing Authority, or here's the real kicker, the Housing Authority. It'd be amazing. As a matter of you know, everyone likes to talk about yesteryear, and there's two examples, especially around election time we were talking about. There's a couple of things, and probably the same in the ACT, that you can invoke, same as Tassie, which was everyone remembers the Housing Department. It was just called the Housing Department. Yeah. And that was a time when people just... What did they do, Mick? They... (laughs) What was their mission statement? <laughs> oh, it's pretty, pretty fucking radical, um, and obviously utopian. And they had their heads in the clouds. And um, before it was um, ripped to pieces by the private sector, it was a good thing. Mm. They just provided housing, and there weren't. This was pre-housing crisis. It was pre-letting an essential service be commoditized and blown up by the market mechanisms and all that. So people romanticizing, oh, we can't have that back. You know, sure we could. Yep. Of course we could. We have a lot of lots of crown land, and we could do radical things like be involved in supply chains but another one particularly in tassie where we still own our energy generation people everyone remembers the good old days of the hydro but now if you went to someone and said we're going to build uh, our government's got a plan to build 15 billion dollars worth of renewables people go oh you can't do that no that's crazy As if you can you can't do that well yeah. why could they do it in 1920 yeah how did that <laughs> how was that a thing yeah and again it was vision it was the people had a vision and they had a bit of conviction about them i was gonna say conviction and confidence and as i said bizarrely the the, the conservatives are neck deep in this they don't go and brag about it you know they they kind of dog whistle it so they don't say, oh, look, we're building all these nationalised assets. Labor was right. They say, no, 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 we're building this special thing for this special group and it's different. Goes so, through, right through Armadale. Goes right through Armadale. <laughs> detours through a few other marginal seats. So, yeah, so they've got the conviction and the, and the confidence to do it. And, and, and let's be clear, they like doing it. The voters are happy with it. You know, why, why wouldn't a Labor government do the same thing? And... You know, maybe they will, but I think we we certainly need to more accurately describe what's been going on because otherwise, because the story we've been told is that government's just been shrinking and shrinking and shrinking. It hasn't. The bits of government that I like have been shrinking and shrinking and shrinking, right? You know, the the proportion of kids going to public schools falling. You know, proportion of people getting 100% bulk billed when they go to doctors falling. But the funding... Subsidy, and this is what I that breaks my head around that six hundred and forty billion dollars, the amount of money we give to things that are otherwise profitable on their own. So yep. not only in a political theory sense is that nonsense. Yep. That's just crook as a dog's hind leg. Which again is like if you forget about the government and all the zeros, think about imagine if it was my local footy club and I could see that there was money going to shit we didn't need and nothing for the things everyone needed. Would I think that's boring? What I think, oh, who cares who the president of the footy club is? I like, play, I like playing in mud. It's yeah, great. the mud's good and the, glad the hot water doesn't work in winter. He needs a shower. Yeah, it makes me strong. Before we, before we go into um, what might be in the future, because it's obviously a lot more of a positive time and we all need to recover from the PTSD of living <laughs> under the libs for 10 years. But there's a couple of um, pretty dark examples that I don't think people should forget, and that's um, the NDIS and the politicisation and the stigma attached to what should have been an absolutely beautiful 
system that was rolled out and the Libs tried to cannibalise that the same way as they did the NBN uh, but also Gonski funding so even funding for every school child who went to school and it was set there was a known level of funding and that's just been hit back over the net a dozen times as well and that's really really frustrating particularly um, when your good self Richard has informed listeners on a million different platforms how wealthy our country really is and the fact that people are fighting in the margins over basic things that we should really count as human rights like shelter education universal health care it is a pretty sad space to be batting from but i thought that was worth noting uh, because we're coming from a large handicap moving into a world of hope yeah. in a way so it's going to take a long time to undo a bit of that damage in my view look take a long time but also it won't happen without us having high expectations it won't happen without voters and citizens just thinking no that's shit this could be better and you know i get that not everyone's life revolves around politics that's good and certainly don't revolve around budgets that's good but yeah we've mentioned the stage three tax cuts before 15 billion dollars a year now most people think yeah oh, it doesn't affect me directly and they're right maybe except where it does affect them is that what happens in australia and this is the real success of neoliberalism We've got teachers' unions saying, we need more resources. We've got nurses' unions saying, we need more resources. We've got disabled people saying, we need the NDIS, needs more resources. And what typically happens, I call it the policy death match, is <laughs> we, we set those three groups. Is that in a cage? Yeah, well, it's in the octagon. Right? <laughs> we, we set those three groups at each other and say, you prove that you're most worthy. You know, prove to me that... Helping women fleeing domestic violence is more important than, you know, giving a billion dollars to the aged care sector, and that's more... Im so we're always pitted against each other. But we're only pitted against each other because we believe there's not shitloads of money for all that's of right. us. That's right. It's only the human human problems are seen as the thing with finite... Correct. Finite. The $15 billion per year, $15,000 million per year in tax cuts for people earning over one hundred and eighty grand a year. No, no, put that aside. That's off the table. That's off the table. We're here to fight between health and education. Fight, 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 fight. You know, so if you think about a union, if you think about any negotiation, you know, when you've got three groups ripping each other to bits and one group sitting over there eating popcorn, you know, maybe, just maybe, the three groups fighting should have a look at who's munching the popcorn. Yep. And, and that's where, you know, I think everyone who cares about whether it's health, education, NDIS, you name it, if you're not paying some attention to the revenue side, then you're missing the main game. Because what they, what the government has been doing is they keep cutting taxes and saying, oh, there's no money left for the things you've got. And rather than people lining up to say, well, why the fuck did you cut those taxes? Instead, they're like, oh, please don't cut my spending then. You know, let's, so unfortunately, that's the real trick of neoliberalism is it's tricked individuals and even sectors to divide on what the priority should be when they should unite on the need to have just a bigger, better publicly funded range of services. Fuck, sounds, sounds like a thing that I've heard of called the right wing ratchet. <laughs> you heard of that, Richard? I have, oh. I have, yep. Exactly. I, I actually reckon that policy death matches are new. That's, <laughs> they're, both, they're both unbelievable. It's so good. It's funny, um, you know, to hear you explain it in that way because when it comes to nuclear subs, it's an open checkbook. It doesn't matter. We can do whatever we want. Um, we'll spend whatever it takes. 
but something like free childcare, like the pushback that you get from uh, voters or other people's like, oh, you know, where's where's the money coming from and how are we going to afford that? You know, t- taxes are going up. Now, so, Albo got slammed for asking for a couple of billion for to reform aged care. Yeah. Like the – sorry. And there's a multitude of examples about where things – where there's – you have to be tight on money and where you don't. Yeah, absolutely. And like – like you've sort of already touched on, the economic debate's been weaponised and hijacked to mean something that it's not necessarily uh, does mean when they use it against Labor. Do you think before Labor embarks on this new journey that we should lock them all into a room, give them a conobabble and say, <laughs> you can't come out of this room until you've read that and fully understand it? And if you have any questions, Richard, we'll be happy to answer them for you. But fucking push back against the bullshit that's been lumped in your corner, so to speak, over such a long period of time because there doesn't seem to be any pushback against this shit about, oh, Labor's a bad economic managers and the LNP was really great and all this other bullshit winning. Clearly that's not the case and it's a matter of perspective. And But there doesn't seem to be any or hasn't seemed to be any like real fight and pushback against the bullshit narrative. Yeah. Oh, look, it's interesting. So, yes, is the short answer. They should all have to read all my books. And, <laughs> and, and uh, buy multiple copies. Buy multiple copies and do a test before they can leave the room. <laughs> nice. But but here's – so, but now let me cut Labor some slack while saying it's actually all of our jobs to put some pressure on them. In order to win office, the last election they took a more ambitious agenda and they lost. And, you know, sign me up for the 2019 agenda, but – they lost. Yep. And Morrison would have loved it if they did it again. He would have loved it if they did it again. Yeah, it was almost and, the election about nothing. Exactly. So, and and to talk about 2019 for a sec, you know, Bass and Braddon, some of the lowest income electorates in Australia, swung to the libs in 2019 when Labor was promising free childcare and free cancer treatment and saying we're going to clamp down on a tax concession known as, you know, dividend imputation credit refunds, which I know for a fact there aren't many people in northern Tasmania relying on those. And it didn't stop, uh, and this is why we need better education spending as well, it didn't stop punters going to Centrelink on the Monday asking for their franking credits. Oh, really? Being told, oh, if you're here, you don't have them. No, you don't. So, so my point is, you know, so on the one hand, yep, Labor kind of went along with that in 2019, they lost. And part of me is sort of frustrated that they didn't do the same thing again. And part of me is happy that they didn't do the same thing again and they won. So I think that really between now and the next election, you know, this is where I think what you guys are doing is so important. Like what we actually have to do is broaden the public conversation so that those scare campaigns don't work as well in the future because the Libs will still try them on, so that we can actually go to our elected members of parliament, most of whom are Labor, and say, look, come on, you know, we're all big kids, we've all read a Conobabble, we can do this. No, no, and, and we have to kind of show them as MPs that they won't be committing electoral suicide right. by doing it. Yeah. Um, so, you know, 100%, I, I'm with you, but their job, Albo's job was to win, and he did. And he's going to have to keep most of the promises he made. And if he reneges on a big one, you know, he knows he'll cop it from some. Um, the Libs reneged. They promised a budget surplus and delivered the biggest deficit in history. <laughs> right? But I, I hate to say it, it's harder for Labor. 
That's right, because they, they're, they're up against the machinery. Correct. But, but you know, in, in principle, I agree with you 100%, but I think we all need to have more of these conversations. And really, I think unions are very important here because, again, if the nurses' union, the teachers' union, you know, if all those groups see, hang on, we can't get played off against each other again, to some extent, none of them think, and rightly, if you're running the nurses' union, you've got bigger problems than Richard's tax agenda. But unless some effort goes in, to collected more tax, they know they're going to cop it yep. down the track. So um, doubling down on that and just on more of the political side, the thing that sort of really makes me nervous from here, like even though the election win hasn't sort of sunk in and how good that's going to be for millions of people that don't know it yet, mm. which is beautiful, but part of the stuff we're talking about is uh, almost – a second second term or third term agenda, and that's a that's a big bet to lay yep. to stay dormant, try and retain the trust of the voters, and then get the big M word, the mandate word, to start having a slap in the second or third term. Yep. Oh, I I'm more ambitious than that. But see, again, I'm not running for office, right? So I'll, I'll be grumpy from day one and say, "Come on." So I mean this. I guess I'm just walking both sides of the street. You know, my job is not to seek election. I didn't seek election, I wasn't elected, and I feel very confident today saying I want more than was promised, right? and I'll make that case. But I just think the more people who make that case and the more people who talk to more people about, well, this is good, but I want even more, uh, either it'll be easier for Labor to say, all right, well, we promised we'd go this far, but actually you're right, we can go further. Uh, and so I don't think we should just be entirely unambitious about the first term, but I do think that, uh, you know, I'm sure what a Labor frontbencher would say is, it, no, if we can deliver a federal corruption commission, if we can get, you know, better um, uh, climate targets in, if we can fix aged care, you know, rattle off a list of three or four other... I think they'll honestly say, look, if we can actually land that in three years' time, we're going to feel pretty pleased with ourselves. Mm. And I'm going to look them in the eye and say, well, good, I still want more. Sure. Right? But they're not going to feel too ashamed if, quote, that's all they get done. Yep. But they'll get even more done with more community support. And, again, in three years' time, it'll come around fast. Uh, the, you know, the chances of them promising even more uh, are greater if we do more. And then, of course, there's the poor Liberal Party. Uh, no, because are they going to vote? No, are they going to vote against this stuff? Like, really? Like, you know. So when 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 Labor puts up a federal corruption watchdog, are the Libs actually going to vote against it? All right, maybe Labor would hope. Right. Hope so. but, no, but my point is, if if the Liberal Party folds on a bunch of these things, it'll be even easier, I think, for Labor to say, well, if there's no contest. Why don't we go even further? Yeah. So, yeah. And that's a good example with the um, federal ICAC too. Yeah. Yeah, I just I can't believe they'll vote against it. <laughs> well, I suppose in the way I see it, and when you tally up all their shenanigans over the journey, they're probably voting against it to save their – to stay out of jail. <laughs> yeah, but, of but even if they vote against it, it's still going to pass. No, yeah. that's right. You know? And then there's the fascinating environment where we've seen the Liberals lose seats to the Greens – the Liberals have lost seats to Labor and the Liberals have lost seats to these independents, the so-called Teals. So they're literally losing votes in all directions for the position they've held for 10 years. Clearly that is no longer an electorally appealing position. And, you know, there's some people saying, oh, look, Labor's primary vote was only 32%. Uh, put another way, 70% of people thought what the Liberals were offering <laughs> was unattractive. Yeah. So there's a super majority 
in the parliament, there's a super majority of people that support more climate action, more action on uh, on corruption, more action on gender equality. There's an overwhelming number of parliamentarians that support all those things. But unfortunately, we didn't have much of a debate this election about the size of government. You know, aged care being an important but unique exception. Given what happened in 2019, I thought it was clever the way in which they did run this campaign because they got smashed for being bold and a win's a win. Yep. And it's it's a brave new world. Now, I'm going to dump a really dirty word on this podcast <laughs> and that word is taxes. <gasps> and there's a really good quote, once again, out of Richard's new book, if you haven't got it, go out and buy it, called Big, The Role of the State in the Modern Economy, where you say... Virtually everything Australians have been told about their tax system is nonsense. (laughs) Do you want to elaborate a bit on that, Richard? Uh, Australia, so there's all these pinko lefty international organisations like the World Bank and the International Monetary (laughs) Fund and the OECD, and and they they have all this secret information that they hide on this thing called the internet. And and, and if you find these top secret international sources of data... What you find is Australia is one of the lowest tax countries in the developed world. We are not a high tax country. As a percentage of our national income, as a percentage of GDP, we don't collect much tax. We don't collect much tax off rich people. We don't collect much tax off the oil and gas industry. We don't collect much tax. We don't have any wealth tax in Australia. The communists in America do. Boris Johnson, the well-known <laughs> communist in the UK, does. Right. So kind of everything that we've been told about our tax system is bullshit. Now, if we want to be one of the lowest tax countries in the world, okay, that's a choice. With that choice comes consequences. And the countries, as I said before, like Norway and Denmark and Sweden and Finland, they've gone an entirely different route. High wage, high tax, big public sector, free childcare, free universal health, Everyone goes to public schools. There's no private schools, effectively, in these countries. Free university education. Like, Germany doesn't just have free degrees. Anyone who happens to be in Germany can get a free degree, including refugees who happen to wind up in Germany. It's uncon- and, and Angela Merkel was not a left-winger, right? That was the centre-right government, right? So our, our, our horizons have just been crushed by decades of being lied to, and again, personally, I'm you know I earn above average income. I'm more than happy to pay more tax. I'm very happy for people who earn heaps more than me to pay more tax. <laughs> no, but personally, I'm sure. happy to. Yeah, absolutely. And, and if 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 you never had to spend a cent on private health insurance ever again, if you never had to spend a cent on private school fees, if you never had to spend a cent on co-payments when you went to the doctor or the pharmacist, there, there's your cost of living. Fixed. Yeah. I fixed it. You know. Yeah. So so yeah. So we've just been told if I cut taxes, put more money in your pocket, and here's the economic trick: all other things being equal, we usually say that in Latin, ceteris paribus. If I cut taxes, put more money in your pocket, all other things being equal, you'll be better off. But all other things aren't equal. Sure. I made education dearer. I made health dearer. I made childcare dearer. I made aged care dearer. I made public transport dearer. Guess what? We wound up worse off. So, yeah, we're, we're not a high-tax country, and high-tax countries have lower cost of living than us. And those two things, according to the pinko lefties at the International Monetary Fund, are unarguable. 
the question is, do more Australians, you know, like the sound of what we've got or do they believe we could do it better? It's almost like we've been robbed of that democratic right by how the debate's been skewed and hijacked. Yep, and conducted in a language that people felt was boring and wasn't for them. Effectively, a very effective, like a, a marketing campaign that brainwashed yep. everyone to vote against their interest. Um, yep. Also, run, run by a media owned and controlled, you know, largely by the, you know, wealthy, powerful conservatives. Who effectively is playing a game that he's, we're about, say, 15 to 20 years behind where. It was born and bred in America yep, and following that same. I'm not sure, though, because I think billionaires have your best interests at heart. <laughs> the job creators. We're back, we're back to the job creators. Back to the, the wealth builders. Oh, man. <laughs> is, there, is there anything about – because it's still um, – I think people are reasonably accepting of billionaires where I've, we're aware of the sort of view that it's not it's only – And I don't like to use morality because it's subjective, but – it's sort of unnatural in a way. Like there's a, a really good analogy. If scientists observed a bunch of monkeys in a cage and a couple of monkeys or one monkey hoarded all the bananas but didn't eat them and just sat them to the side to, and the, all the other monkeys were struggling, the scientists would write a fucking book about it and you'd see it on the internet going, this is, well, this fucking idiot monkey. What's, what's he up to? <laughs> but in that's like a human trait that we've somehow come to worship or envy or something like that you know it's yeah. it's ridiculous yeah at uh, the ex- at the expense of people's lives yeah um so look the short answer is we've been told that billionaires are essential for our economy to work that's not true if i set up a business and it's really successful uh i i get to keep the profits of that business right that's fine that's how our laws work and and i also have to pay tax on those profits that's how our laws work where does economics come in it doesn't really come in anywhere there. How, how much tax should I pay and at what point should it start to kick in and could I ever accumulate enough wealth that actually you just jacked my taxes up and at some point you sort of said, look, anything over this, we'll just take it all off you. Yeah, we could. And if you look back only 50 or 70 years, you know, there were countries that had like 90 95% tax rates on incomes over... You know, what in those terms, were, in those days, were huge amounts of money, like a million bucks a year. Even communist countries like America before the Second World War. Correct. And, and the UK, the Beatles were, you know, paying 90% tax at some point. So don't get me wrong. Like there's a role for profit to motivate people to take risk. If I'm going to set up a business and spend money for a few years before I make money, well, if I don't ever get to keep anything I make, maybe I won't set up my business. That's true. But does anyone really, after having made their first billion or two billion, think, yeah, if I don't get to keep every cent that I make from here on, I'm going to go back in time and not invent this? Sure. And similarly, if you said to someone early on when they're actually doing the important bit, the, you know, the inventing something new, the risk bit, if you said to them, look, one day if you make more than X billion dollars, we're going to take most of that off you, most people would go, you reckon one day I might make that much money? It's a it's a par- it's so, a paradox, isn't it? Yeah, but so my point is that we're we're kind of told that you couldn't have wealth taxes, you couldn't do these things, or you'll destroy all innovation, upset the, upset the market. Yes, but it's always grandiose, you know, That's like right. you'll break everything. It's like no, you wouldn't. You'd change things a bit, but most people who have, were passionate about something who set up a business. If you said to them early in the game, 
let's talk about what happens after you make your first billion or two. <laughs> I reckon they'd say, fine. Yeah, I'm <laughs> right. Let's worry about it then. Exactly. Right. Or, or, and then, you know, you could actually play politics with this and say, you know what we can do? And, and I don't think we need to do this, but, you know, politics does matter in democracy. You can say, well, how about this? How about we, we cut the taxes for small businesses and if you ever make it to a billion, we'll jack it up. You reckon most small businesses would sign up for that? Sure, I do too. Yeah, that that would be the aim, right? So, so again, the so all of a sudden it goes from in principle I hate it to oh no, oh there's something in it for me. Yeah, sure, sign me up. That's right, and that's kind of proof of how much of the economic claims is nonsensical, and how you know this is kind of why Norway and Denmark and Sweden have got to got got away with high taxes because people could see yeah, you know what, if you're that rich. You pay some more tax, you still got a nice house, you still got a nice car. And even if a transition was to say, if you get to 999 million, we'll, you know, it'd be like the Hollywood boardwalk. We'll put a star on the thing and you get a brass statue and you say, you won capitalism. And but, it's like a, but, an award you get. But seriously, life that would go nice? on. Sure. And no, it's a recognition. The great folk. But why it, not hand out status? Because that's what the money really becomes that's at right. some point. So why not hand out status? And, and sorry to interrupt you, but in, in plenty of Nordic countries, like we publish the rich list, they publish the top taxpayer list. Wow. We don't we, – we celebrate the people that got away with it. Yeah. <laughs> they, no, literally. Yeah. Right, they celebrate yep. who made the biggest contribution. The court list. <laughs> and But isn't that – and they're saying, look, you know, all right, so you're rich and you paid, you know, 50 million bucks in tax. Thanks. Wow, right. that's that's amazing. That's a really so I, what a shift. But I think your point, of, like I, I mean it, stars, statues, fine, right? Because okay, you, you did something that you were good at. People liked what you were good at. You got a shit ton of money. Go you, and now actually you don't need double shit ton of money. So how about you know you you keep you chip in? We'll build your statue. Yep. Thanks for that. And by the way, we, we're not having to tell aged care workers to take one for the team. Sure. And the um, reasonably frustrating part is the idea generally that humans don't do anything uh, or come up with new ideas or try hard or put the effort into something unless there's a monetary reward. Like yeah, there's true. a sole ownership of if there's no money in it, it doesn't happen. But obviously the, the cricket club example would be one. There's millions. Oh, we all know that no humans invented anything before the 1800s. You know, like without capitalism, <laughs> as we know, no, sure. no one had any invent incentive nah. to invent fire or guns. We need fire for. <laughs> no money in I that. I like the cold pa how paper. Gonna, how are you going to commercialise that? Yes. What's your business plan? Soap. Fire. <laughs> Something. Yeah, it'll pay off. The um, my, my children's children. We'll start paying off then. They'll have uh, stocks. Fucking hell! I can't help but feel that I'm getting. Just fully weighed down with this massive burden called red tape. Oh. <laughs> I, I can barely walk. It's like <laughs> it's just overwhelming at times. Like I just can't do anything without this red tape ruining my life. Yeah, making um, chefs wash their hands. Oh, it's <laughs> ironic, very Maybe. ironic in the sense that there's two trade unionists on this podcast. So there's all in organisational and commercial space and corporate space. Red tape is terrible, except when it comes to red unions tape for unions. Regulate the bejesus out of you. God, yeah. it's terrifying, isn't it? But you, um, obviously, in a corner battle, a corner babble, and uh, your latest book, Richard, big. <laughs> good at the role of the state in the modern economy. Uh, talk a lot about red tape and 
one of the things that uh, recently, well, not that recently, came up about red tape was a couple of state elections ago where the Labor Party wanted to remove poker machines from clubs and pubs. So I don't know the full story, but under um, Jim Bacon's government, they did a deal with Federal and out they went into the community, which was a fucking terrible idea. I'm led to believe that Labor recognised that was a mistake and then wanted to correct that. But they got slammed for the whole red tape thing. And I remember talking to members about it and they're like, oh, no, it's outrageous, you know, red tape, you should be able to do whatever you want. How dare they take our pokies away and, you know, we should just use them if you want and don't use them if you want. I said, oh, if red tape's that bad, why don't we just get rid of the electrical fucking trade licence and anyone can just go and wire house. It'd be awesome. (laughs) Oh, no, 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 can't do that. That's the good bit. And it's, um, you know, one of your quotes from the book about something like for my friends – uh, anything can for my enemies, the law, and that whole thing about if you've got lots of lawyers, you like lots of laws, and 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 so on and so forth. But you do a really good job of like dispelling this myth of who likes and who doesn't like red tape. Yeah, look, so red tape is just yeah, it's 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 the nasty name for regulation, and you know there are, we like like what should we spend money on? What should we regulate? Is a democratic question. Everyone's entitled to a different opinion, but. For me, looking what's happened in the US again, you know, kids dead in a school, like the solution is obvious. You regulate gun ownership. In America, that's political suicide. But we know that, no, you know, and I saw something appalling or wonderful on Twitter, depending on your perspective. A, a, an American doctor sort of said, you know, I've treated 28 gunshot wounds in the last 12 months. And an Australian doctor said, I've practiced medicine for 25 years. I've never treated a gunshot wound. Like, regulation works. And, mm. of course, you know, Tasmania knows all about that. So what we – and, you know, drove here in a car wearing a seatbelt. We, we all agreed to stay on the left-hand side of the road. There's the oppressive power of the state. Seatbelts. Seat <laughs> right. no, but also, let's be clear, we don't get to choose which side of the road to drive on. Where's, where's your freedom, Richard? Yeah, well, exactly. That's right. You know, well, some people put the dumb into freedom. Um, um <laughs> So, yeah. Clive Palmer. <laughs> no comment. <laughs> but what my point is we, we kind of take good regulation for granted. Like, of course it makes sense to have road rules. And sure, you might object to a particular speed limit, but no one objects to everyone has to drive, stick to your lane. All right? You couldn't have roads without road rules. Um, most people think that, yes, chefs washing their hands is good. Most people, that you know, are going to get operated on are very happy the surgeon wears a mask. But ask other people to wear a mask and, oh, my God, you've ruined my life. You know, I, get, I, can, I, I can't brain, breathe. I can't You're breathe. Such I get a dictator, Richard. And, no, but let's be careful about this. Like, the, the, you know, the, the, the poor blokes that were installing all those, you know, stone, you know, kitchen top things without wearing masks, getting, you know, all sorts of lung disease. Yeah, silicosis. Silicosis. Right, masks protect you from that. Now we make those people doing those jobs or we make their employers make them wear masks. So when do we like regulation and when don't when is it burdensome red tape and when is it common sense? Fine, we can all disagree. But I think we all need to be very live to the fact that yeah, when conservatives don't want to limit their friends' behaviour, they talk about red tape. You know, we don't need regulation of the banks. They don't need more red tape. But when they want to, uh, when they may want to make a misery of life for union officials, oh, uh, we need law and order. We need, you know, we need regulation and oversight. Remember Abbott's famous one, the Red Tape Repeal Day, where oh, they yeah. abolished something like eight hundred 
useless regulations. There was a lot of important regulation <laughs> yeah, in that pile. I, I bet there was. And what they said was needless red tape. Yeah. Um, I'm sure there was some there yeah. was some old legislation in there, but a lot of it was really, really fucking True. important. So best place to hide a tree is in a forest, you know, and rather than have specific debates about specific regulations and say, you know, you really don't think we need to regulate executive pay, you really don't think we need, you know, better protections against wage theft... You know, we've, we've so is regulation good or bad is a silly question. We can all agree and disagree on which regulations are good and which ones are bad, but whenever you hear someone saying, ah, oh, the last thing we need is more red tape, no, you've probably got someone who's very cleverly saying, because I think that sounds like a good idea in the specific, allow me to talk about it in the general. Sure. Oh, and geez. we and we just have to keep the conversation at the specific. And now, and because it's um, been another good political attack point, the idea of green tape. So we don't we don't just have red tape now. We have green tape, multicoloured tape. Obviously, the <laughs> the electorate. But when we just another point of hypocrisy, little bit of morality here as well. But it always cracks me up when conservatives will say, "Oh, we need personal freedom and personal responsibility and liberty and all that sort of rubbish." But they really want to tell you who you can be in love with or yeah. um, what you can write on your, you know, your own affairs. They want to interfere so much in your affairs based on a 2,000-year-old fucking book yeah. than leave you alone. Yeah, um, there's, there's a great line about American conservatives. They want a government that's just small enough to fit in your bedroom. <laughs> <laughs> you know, or, or, or even look at the hypocrisy of people who obsess about other people's freedom to have an abortion saying so called right to life mm. and having no concerns about machine Lock. gun ownership. No. They they care about um, abortion up until a child's born and then, then there's a history of not caring about that person so for the whole rest of their life. Yeah, they care more about the fetus than the baby sure. and care more about the gun ownership than the kid in school. So, uh, and, you know, my favourite example of this, I can't remember which book I use this one in, but, you know, in America they're not completely crazy. Like, they regulate some things and, sure, armour-piercing <laughs> bullets for AK-47s. No, no, that's how you keep yourself safe from other people with AK-47s. Sure. But... But soft cheese, that shit's just too dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> Unpasteurised soft cheese, you might get listeria. No, sure. I shit you not. And ATF going in at people with a bit of selling loose cigarettes or cutting their own, growing their own tobacco. That's <laughs> yeah, that, So you can't import unpasteurised cheese into America where you can import assault rifles. Fucking <laughs> So, no, but see, everyone regulates something, yep. right? And it might be that the dairy industry in the US have actually used trade regulations. That's good red tape for profiteering. Protect, exactly. So they protect themselves from cheap, low-quality European cheese. But guns, nah, freedom, mate. Freedom, freedom. Absolutely. So much non-free, free trade. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Oh. Free oh. trade agreement. There's air quotes in a half. Well, I, I, I've written about this before as well. Like, you know, I can write a free trade agreement in one paragraph. There will be no restrictions on trade between country A and country B. That's not what it really says. Well, though, the Australia Richard. US free trade agreement is 1,400 pages thick. Because sure. it's actually full of all the mutually agreed restrictions, which is good. I'm glad. Like, because even though we've got a free trade agreement with America, you can't import an AK-47 <laughs> from America to Australia. Our, sure. fr our free trade agreement is yep. quite upfront about that. No machine guns. So yeah, what about yeah. my automatic shotgun? Like, where's my freedoms? <laughs> it's, just, it's terrifying, isn't it? Is there any hope for, for humans? Are we, have we peaked? 
You've, no. got, you've got to wonder. Yeah, no, look, we'll get there. I, I, I'm an optimist. I, I, I said to someone the other day, like, hope is not a strategy. I'm not hopeful. Uh, I don't sit back and hope that, you know, we'll be fixing. I think, no, if you want to change things, you have to be involved. You've got to do things. You've got to talk to people about it. You've got to hold yourself and other people accountable. And history says, like, you know, think about getting rid of apartheid in South Africa. Think about black people getting the vote in America in the 60s. These things, that wasn't hope. That's right. Hope, hope didn't get anyone anywhere. Uh, think about women getting the vote in Australia in, in the early 20th century. So we have and we can and we will drive big change, but only if we drive big change. Mm. Yeah, you know? get so, organised. So, well, but I'm an optimist because history says that you can do this stuff. Uh, but history doesn't say because you feel right, it'll happen. Bit of thoughts and prayers type <laughs> action. <laughs> Well, horribly well put, but yes, exactly. You know, just as it's meaningless to say that, you know, after these shootings, yeah, hope and prayers won't make Australia a nicer, fairer, kinder, more sustainable place. Hopes and prayers won't do anything, you know, but but action and organising and talking to each other like you guys are doing for people, that's that's history says that's what works. Make the link. Make it's the, link. Ma- the missing link in yeah. the evolutionary chain. So many links. See, you well, guys are a bit hard. I wouldn't have called you the missing link. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I wouldn't. That's being generous, mate. Um, so just so you don't miss the event that you flew to Tassie for, what, t- what have we got a time check on there, Chairman? Time to wrap it up. All right. Wait. Wait. So now. Hang on. Hang Give us your mo- your own, because you pretend to be all cool about it, but I'm sure you want to headbutt people on the every day when they open their mouth. What's your most despised anecdote or myth in economics? What's the biggest affront to your profession? Oh, whenever you hear someone say Australia can't afford to do something, what you actually heard them say was, I don't want to do it. We can afford to do anything we want. We can't afford to do everything we want. And democracy is that fight. Like, democracy is what do you want, what don't you want. But, yeah, anyone that says we can't afford to do that is lying. They took it hook, line and sinker. Well, but the person, the politician or the business leader or whoever, they know. Like, when that's coming from on top. No, so if people believe it, fair enough, they've been lied to. I, I'm saying when when I hear people who I know know better, yep. prime ministers, opposition leaders, business leaders, economists, when they're the ones telling us, oh, it'd be nice to have free childcare, but we can't afford it. Wages keep up with inflation. Oh, we, we, <laughs> we, we can't have real wage rises. What you heard, because we can't afford it, you heard them say, I don't want it. Sure. That's how you translate it. That's the Econobabble translator there. Whenever you hear, we can't afford it, you heard, I don't want to do it. And whenever you hear someone say something's good for the economy, here's my other trick, just substitute the word rich people's yacht money. Yes. Yes. Right? We, we have to cut taxes because it's good for the economy. Rich people's translates yacht money. Translates as, we have to cut taxes because it's good for rich people's yacht money. Amazing. Makes the world look a different place. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and it's it fits it fits so good. It fits perfectly. So, other what I suppose that, that talks about some stuff that we can do on a street level. Um, any suggested homework for our listeners? What would you like people to take away and apply. Well, there's this book, Mick. It's called <laughs> Big, The Role of the State in the Modern Economy. Yeah. Maybe they should read that. After, so after they've read all of Richard's books, <laughs> listened to all his podcasts and also sat the test. Or just my angry tweets. Um, uh, Pi- join Richard's pylons on Twitter. 
look, I, I think the main thing, and it's really simple, but it's hard to do, and that is to to have the confidence, find the confidence, or work with other people to build the confidence to, to ask simple questions of anyone in power and demand simple answers to them. You know, so if you're in a, working in a community, if you're working in a union, and you can see that the people you care about need more money for more services, and then you need to be really honest with yourself and honest with, you know, anyone who's in parliament, anyone to say, how come you can afford to do this, but you say you can't afford to do that? And then just wait for a clear answer. Or, right. cri- or crickets. Or cr- and how, and how, you de- how dare you know your place. Well, pretty you, much. Yeah. And, and, and the more complicated the answer, the more nervous you're making them. So don't – and this is hard. You know, it's easy for me. I've studied economics. I feel quite very confident about it. But when they start to rabbit on with shit you don't understand, that's actually you winning. They, well, they do say if you can't, you can't explain something simply, then you don't understand it Correct. well enough. So. And they're just trying to make you feel bad. Do the nightly news routine. Yep. So, so, yeah, so I think that's the key thing is to have high expectations of your politicians, high expectations of, of those in power, and to demand that they speak to you in a language you understand. Um, and if you do that, you'll make them nervous. From a union and workplace perspective, that is absolutely gold advice because um, often workers are the ones at the coalface who got us through a pandemic and do all sorts of other amazing things, and uh, they deserve more. They sure but do. But they're told that oh, we're so, it's razor thin margins here. Razor we just couldn't, thin. Oh. couldn't. We'll have to wind the joint up. Yeah. There's, there's no money in electrical work. Check out my new yacht. <laughs> <laughs> I named it Super from all the unpaid superannuation. Um, any plugs or shout outs, mate? No, just to you guys. Thank you. <laughs> there there you go. Keep up the great work. And again, this is what, you know, democracy needs people to talk to each other about what we want. And, and part of that's learning new stuff. But most of it isn't even learning. It's just actually talking and sharing and building a sense of what people collectively want and then organising to get it. So, ah, love your work. Keep it up. Mate, thank you. Um, you're now the term the godfather of the In The Shed podcast. <laughs> you, that's something you can't avoid. That's going to stay with you forever. On a personal note as well, I'm still pinching myself because I can't believe when we set out on this, talking a bit of shit in the shed, that um, we would actually get someone of unbelievable intelligence like yourself um, and with the profile and status of yourself it's amazing mate so thanks so much keep doing what you're doing thank you yeah cheers mate